right, we are in our third week, working through the book of Ephesians together, and we are trying to memorize the first 10 verses of chapter 2 of Ephesians throughout the summer. So hopefully you guys have been working on this. Now the kids who are going to camp this week, the families who are going to camp in a couple weeks, they're going to get a big jump start on this, they're going to get it all done their week at camp, but the rest of us, we're just doing just a little bit at a time as we go through. So I'm going to put it up on the screen. We're going to read through the first three verses together, and we're going to take it off the screen and see if we can do it without it. So, Russell, would you please put it up there on the screen for us? So this is Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. It says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Okay, if you haven't been working on this during the week, that seems like a whole lot, I'm sure. But if you work on it a little bit at a time, especially if you first thing in the morning when you wake up, you go through it, maybe while you're showering, uh, when you're going to bed at night, you're going through as your mind is getting tired and shutting things off, work through it at the dinner table with family or while you're driving to work or back, you will be able to get this. So let's take it off the screen and let's go through it one more time. Again, this is the first three verses of Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. All right, now, the kids are going to learn motions to go with that, and maybe they'll teach that to us next week, or maybe we'll just continue um, just using the words. But I would encourage you to, especially when you're doing it on your own, if you're not uh, doing motions and stuff, at least change your voice as you go through it. For example, when you get to children of wrath, it helps to say, children of wrath. And it kind of cements it into your mind there. So please consider doing that. On Tuesday night... I went on an adventure with Russell and Teague. You know, Teague and family are sick this morning, so they're not with us. Otherwise, I was going to embarrass Teague. But we left at about 7 p.m., and we drove down to Scioto Hills Camp to deliver a couple of machines that Russell had been working on for them. I got home at 2.15 in the morning on Wednesday. Now, it was a great time of fellowship. We uh, had you know, roughly six and a half, seven hours in the vehicle together. And in order for me to carve out the time to do that, I had to make it profitable for work also. So we spent most of our time talking through today's sermon passage. They asked great questions. We, we talked about the confusing parts. What does this mean? What does this, how does this apply to our lives? All that. It was great. In fact, they did such a great job that if I took the stuff that they generated in those few hours of conversation, we would do four weeks just on this one week passage. No, we're not going to do that, but we are going to do two weeks. We've broken it down in half. This week, we're going to look at a sure hope, and then next week, we'll look at the same passage, but we'll look at a great power. Now, in the middle of our passage, we read this verse, verse 18. 
having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. I'm going to use the language, the ideas of that verse to pray for us now as we get into our time in the Word. Father, I come before you this morning thankful for the way that you worked through conversations this week and through study in order to get me ready for, for preaching this morning. I thank you that we do not rely on me coming up with clever things, ways to help us in life, but that we get to rely on your word and that you had these words written for us almost 2,000 years ago and we get to, to benefit from them today. We get to, to feast on them today. Pray, Lord, that you would feed us on your word. You would help us to grow to become more like your son. The eyes of our hearts, they tend to be darkened. They tend to be closed. The things that happen throughout the, the week tend to wear on us and, and shut us off to what you have revealed to us in your word. So I pray, Lord, that you would, you would open the eyes of our hearts this morning, that you would speak through your word to give us wisdom and revelation and knowledge that through your perfect, unchanging word, we might know the things you want us to know, and we would know what to do with that. In Jesus' name, amen. So today we're talking about hope, specifically a sure and steady hope. And like I've been doing the last couple weeks, I want you guys to just have a quick interaction with each other. So think in your mind of something that you have hoped for in life. You could go all the way back to you know, being a kid. Like what, what did you hope that you would get for Christmas or for your birthday? Or something that you really hoped would happen in your teen years. Or even, even just this week, some hope that you had. So think about a hope that you held on to. Share that with somebody near you. And then tell them, did that hope actually come to fruition? Did you receive the thing that you hoped for? So just take a minute and share with your neighbor, please. give you about 15 seconds to finish up. All right. So open your Bibles, please. If you didn't bring a Bible, please grab a pew Bible in front of you. If you're using a pew Bible, you can page, turn to page 976. This is Ephesians chapter 1, 15 through 23. And what I would like us to do is out of reverence and honor for God's word, if you guys would please stand with me. I'm going to read through the whole passage, Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. This is on page 976 if you're working from a pew Bible. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and knowledge of him. 
having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Thank you. Have a seat. We're going to work through just the first half of this today. And uh, almost everything that we read there was originally a single, long, complicated sentence. Now, that was true of the passage we worked through the last couple of weeks, too. Almost all of it was one giant sentence in the original Greek. Now, even though it's been translated to English, if we are honest with ourselves, what we just read is kind of hard to understand, especially if we're not already familiar with some of the ideas or the way that the language is working there. Now, we're meant to feed ourselves, to feast on the Word of God, but in a case like this, if we were to try to ingest this, it would be like taking the whole turkey and trying to shove it in your mouth at one time. It's just not going to work. So we've got to break it into chunks, figure out what's going on with each chunk, and allow that to feed us. So if we start at the beginning, break it into chunks, we have this. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now, whenever you're reading through the Bible, especially the New Testament, and you get to either the word therefore, or like in this particular passage, it says for this reason, you need to pause and you need to figure out what came before it. You see the word therefore, what you want to be asking yourself is, what's the therefore, therefore? Just stick that into your head. What's the therefore, therefore? In this case, it says for this reason, we want to know what the reason is for this reason. We go back to what we looked at the last couple weeks. To summarize that first section... Paul is telling us about the reconciliation that we have in Christ, reconciliation to God and reconciliation to each other, and how we have been sealed with the Spirit, the guarantee of our future inheritance. That future inheritance is eternal life with God. So when he gets here to this verse and he says, for this reason, it's for the reason of our reconciliation our guarantee of a future inheritance of eternal life. For this reason, he goes on. He says he has heard of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he's actually seen with his eyes the faith of some of them. If you read Acts chapter 19, you'll see how Paul went to the city of Ephesus. He found some people who were disciples, but not disciples of Jesus. They were disciples of John the Baptist. They knew nothing of the actual gospel of Jesus. They only knew of the guy leading up to Jesus. He shared the gospel with them. He saw them come to faith in Christ. He saw them baptized. He spent time with them, discipling them. He knows some of these guys, but this is years later. And now he writes back to them, and he's, he's basing his knowledge of them off of reports. He's received letters from them, been traveling throughout the Mediterranean. And these people that he loves have now grown into a larger group of people that he doesn't know, but he keeps hearing from people that they have a great faith in the Lord Jesus. What else does he hear? He hears about their love toward the saints. Now remember, saints are not super Christians. If you are a Christian, if you are in Christ, like we talked about in detail last week, you are a saint. 
So these folks have faith in the Lord Jesus, and they have love toward the saints, towards each other. And this is their reputation. This is what Paul knows about them. This is what causes him to be thankful for them and to rejoice in them. I long for our church to have that kind of reputation also. Now, I know we're a, we're a little bit of a, a strange fit for many people in town. The fact that we say salvation is only by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is either offensive or seems a little narrow or simplistic to many people. The fact that we want to take the Word of God seriously, that we're going to spend 40 minutes this morning studying this Word, trying to figure out what it says, seems weird to a lot of people. The fact that we call each other to lives of holiness, that, that our Christianity is not simply uh, following of a ritual or making sure that we participate in certain scheduled things throughout the week, but that our lives are to be transformed into the likeness of Christ, that is weird for a lot of people in our culture. But no matter what people think about what we believe, I hope that our reputation becomes such that even if somebody says, I'm not so sure about what they believe or what they teach at their church, and I don't agree with that, or I wasn't raised that way, that they would at least look at us and say, but look at their faith in the Lord Jesus, and look at their love for each other. That's how Paul looks at this Ephesian church from a couple hundred miles away. And it drives him to thankfulness. Now, when we were on our drive on Tuesday night, Russell and Teague and myself, we were talking through this, and um, Teague wanted to make sure that you guys, the church, understood what a biblical love is. All right, so if we're talking about love for the saints, what does that mean? And I don't remember if it was Russell or Teague that said, it's not a Disney kind of love. It's not a, it's not a fluffy love. Now, now, a Disney love feels good. It always ends with the, the good guys winning, always ends with true love's kiss. There's always this sense of destiny in the story, and we we're meant to be together. But what the Bible means about love is often very different than a Disney kind of love. I would put it this way. Biblical love is often tough. Now, I don't mean cruel. I don't mean harsh. I mean strong. Biblical love is often tough, and it is always tied to truth. In this month of June, many people in our country are celebrating what they consider to be love in Pride Month. The Bible tells us that they are deceived, that they are following a lie, not the truth. Real love is always tied to the truth. In Ephesians 4.15, we read this. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So what are we to do? We are to speak the truth in love. We're not just speaking the truth in all its possible harshness. We're not being rude. We're not being cruel. We're not stabbing people with the truth. We're speaking the truth in love. But we're also not just doing the love part. We're speaking the truth part. What we consider to be love, if it doesn't have truth, it is not actually biblical love. And what's the goal, according to this verse later in Ephesians 4? It's so that we grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So the goal of love for each other 
is that we grow up to be more like Christ. And yes, there's great comfort, there's care for us, there's supporting each other, all of that stuff, but the ultimate goal is far higher than that. It is our becoming more Christ-like. So, in our discussion in the truck on the way down on Tuesday, I wrote down word for word something that Teague said. This is why I'm sad that he's sick today, because I wanted to quote him directly to you guys and watch his face turn red like mine is from the sunburn. He says this, I'm not going to tell you what you want to hear. I'm going to tell you what you need to hear so that you can grow and mature in Christ. Now, kind of a tough love out in the world would say, I'm not going to tell you what you want to hear. I'm going to tell you what you need to hear so that you can be put in your place, so that you can be a productive citizen, so that you can stop talking back to me, whatever it is. But Teague says, I'm going to tell you what you need to hear so that you can grow and mature in Christ. He's echoing there what Paul writes in chapter 4 of Ephesians, speaking the truth in love so that in every way we grow up into him, into the head, who is Christ. All right, so back to Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. Let me read it again. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you remembering you in my prayers. So because of their love for Christ, I'm sorry, their faith in Christ, their love for the saints, Paul says he does not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. My first thought is, that is pretty cool. He loves these people so much that he's just going to pray and pray and pray and pray and pray for them. And he's so pleased with what God has done in them that his, his prayers are mostly thankfulness. Thank you, Lord, for this church that loves each other, that has great faith in you. Thank you that that the reports that I'm receiving about them are so encouraging to me. But then we also have to say, this is kind of extreme for him to say, he, he doesn't stop praying for them. How is that possible? How could you pray that much? Well, a few years after this, Paul's going to write a letter to a different church in the city of Thessalonica. Russell, let's go to the map there. So it's just across the Aegean Sea from the Ephesus church. He's going to write in the book that we now call 1 Thessalonians in 517. He's going to write this teeny little verse, pray without ceasing. He's going to actually command the Thessalonians to pray without ceasing. Now we could spend a bunch of time on this. We don't really have the time to do that, but let me just say this. If you think of prayer as only the formal times, like you say, okay, I'm going to spend some time in prayer right now. And I'm going to pray in the morning. I'm going to pray at meals. I'm going to pray when I go to bed. I'm going to pray at church. I'm going to have some quiet time where I'm praying and read my Bible. If you think of prayers only as that time, you're never going to be able to accomplish what Paul just said here, the praying without ceasing thing. Or you wouldn't get anything else done and you would starve to death. If you can cultivate, though, a life where communication with God is something that happens as, as like a background conversation throughout your whole day. So that when there's a lull in what's going around, going on around, your, your mind is automatically going to prayer with God. When something happens to you, the first thing going through your mind is a prayer. If you can cultivate that kind of constant background conversation with God, then you can get closer to this goal of praying without ceasing. Or, as Paul says, he's always praying for the Ephesians and giving thanks for them. 
So what is he praying for other than giving thanks? If we go back to Ephesians 1, verse 17, he says this. This is what he's praying. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. May give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Now, is Paul saying, Father, please give them the Holy Spirit? Now, the way that the ESV translators chose to make things lay out here, they seem to be suggesting that because they're capitalizing the word spirit. There's no capital in the original language, but they're saying we're going to capitalize the word spirit so that the reader thinks this is the Holy Spirit. And I don't think that is what Paul is getting at here. Now, they're a whole lot more skilled than I am, but let me just say this. They are already believers in Christ. They have the Holy Spirit living inside of them. Paul actually, in Acts 19, laid hands on many of them and saw the Spirit come into them. It wouldn't make sense, in my mind, for Paul to say, Lord, please send the Spirit on them. I think he's talking about this in a different way, perhaps in the way that we say, wow, He has, or that team has a lot of spirit. Same word, different kind of meaning, right? Jesus himself uses the word spirit in this other way. In Matthew 5, he says this in verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. To be poor in spirit doesn't mean you are short on the Holy Spirit, lacking in the Holy Spirit. That term poor in spirit is the idea of being humble, of being meek. It's the opposite of proud and arrogant. So, Paul says, I want the, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ to give you the spirit of, and then he gives three markers of this kind of spirit that he's talking about. Wisdom, revelation, and knowledge. Let me just cut to the application of this instead of diving into all the weeds there. What is our source for all three of these, wisdom, revelation, and knowledge? It's the Bible. It's the Word of God. When Paul is writing this, he's actually writing part of what would become our source, the Bible. He's praying for these Ephesian people that they would have wisdom They would have revelation, that means information from God, and that they would have knowledge. Wisdom, if you lack in wisdom, you can pray and ask God for wisdom, James says that, and you can study your Bible, and you can get wisdom. If you want revelation, things are confusing, you need the truth to be revealed to you, God has already revealed everything that we need in his word. And then the last one, knowledge, specifically says knowledge of God. Now, people look for knowledge of God or look for spiritual knowledge in all kinds of different ways today. Our our world, our culture is more spiritual than ever and yet less Christ-like. We're relying on all kinds of other sources, psychics or mediums or um, self-help or yoga or a little bit of Buddhism mixed with a little bit of Hinduism and sprinkle in a little bit of secular humanism, make your own mix of things, whatever. We are on the lookout for knowledge, knowledge of God, spiritual knowledge. But the real source of that is the Bible. 
For us as children of God, we have all that God has given us and all that we need for wisdom and revelation and knowledge. We have it in his word. I get this. When Paul writes these words to the Ephesian church, he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's praying that they would have wisdom, revelation, and knowledge. And at that very moment that he's writing and praying those things, he is providing for them and for us the very thing that he's praying for, the wisdom and the revelation and the knowledge. It becomes Scripture for us. And so he's praying that God provides these things, and he is the answer to that prayer in that moment that he's praying it. God's working that all together so that as he prays for them and by extension for us to have that wisdom and revelation and knowledge, it is actually through his pen that God is providing that for us. So he goes on in his prayer to the Ephesians. He says, this is what we read earlier, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, if you tuned in the last couple of weeks as we went through the first part of Ephesians 1, I hope that the language, the grammar of this verse is standing out to you, specifically the passive nature of it. Paul does not say to the Ephesians and to us, enlighten yourselves, enlighten the eyes of your heart. He doesn't say that. He's praying that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened. We cannot enlighten ourselves. Now, we can learn stuff. We can study stuff. But when it comes to the really important things, the eyes of our heart, as he says, the ability to understand and receive the wisdom and revelation and knowledge that comes from God, we can't study our way into that. Our, the eyes of our hearts need to be opened. God has to do that work in us. It's something he does for us as a gift. Now, I find it curious that he chooses to use the body part, the heart, for this. Because he seems to be talking really about mind stuff, not heart stuff. And this is a difference between our culture and the culture that he's reading in, that he's writing in. In the ancient world, and especially from a Jewish worldview, the heart was not the seat of emotion like we think of today. The heart was considered the seat of reason, of thinking. It would be like today if you, you looked longingly into the eyes of your beloved and you said, I love you with all my mind. Now that's a good thing to say, but it's not really what we're trying to communicate in that moment, right? Your beloved would look at you like, what? What do you mean? Because we would use the word heart there. Or maybe you've just gone through a terrible breakup, and you're talking to your friends, and your eyes are just pouring out tears, and you say, I'm so broken-minded. I'll never love again. My mind is broken. It doesn't make sense for us. But if, if you were writing and reading in that ancient culture, especially in the culture that Paul grew up in, that's how he would choose to communicate that. But he uses the word heart instead. So what do they use to communicate what we mean by heart? The idea of emotion, 
the, the gut feeling or the, the emotional way that we love somebody else, they actually would use the terms for the bowels. Right? So your stomach, your intestines, that was considered the seat of emotion, of feeling for those ancient people, especially the Jewish people. So here's how it would work. Guys, you say to your wife, honey, when you walk into the room, you set my intestines a-fluttering. Okay. Now, that's not going to achieve what you're looking for, right? But that, that is the way that the language would be used back then. And so when Paul is communicating to the Ephesians, if he wanted to communicate to them about emotional stuff, he wants to, if he wants to focus on the emotions, he could use the words for bowels or stomach or intestine. But instead, he uses the word heart, which for us would be the equivalent of using the word mind. Emotions are a gift from God. But emotions are not meant to direct our thinking, to direct our reasoning and our understanding. Rather, our minds, our thinking, our reasoning, self-control is meant to direct and channel our emotions. We see hints of that here in what Paul chooses to focus on. We see this in other places in Scripture. So if we look very quickly at Matthew 12, 34, Jesus says this, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. When he says that, he's, he's thinking not about the pump that's inside of you making your blood go around. He's the, the seat of who you are, your personality, your thinking, your reasoning, the, where the words come from, they come out of, in the ancient world, your heart. In our, our world, we would say the mind. Or Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick. Who can understand it? Again, not talking about the pump, talking about what we think is going on in our mind. Or in Ezekiel, God makes this promise to the people of Israel. I will give them one heart, a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them, and they shall be my people and I will be their God. And even though he's speaking of actual physical flesh here, that word, we know that he's speaking metaphorically. He's talking about a soft heart. They're hard-hearted. He's going to remove their hard heart and put a soft heart in the people. We understand what that means. So when Paul prays for the enlightening of the eyes of their hearts, of our hearts, it's the equivalent of the eyes of our minds, the way that we think, the way that we understand. So again, reading it, verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Is this the same inheritance that we looked at a couple times in the first half of chapter 1? Yes, it is. It is specifically that inheritance of eternal life with God, that promise that we have, that we will one day take possession of. Notice how Paul describes this inheritance, though. He says it's a glorious inheritance. We might say awesome, amazing, stupendous inheritance. Now, if we're talking about the inheritance being eternal life with God the Father, that's pretty awesome, stupendous, amazing, glorious on its own. 
But Paul wants to make sure that we understand this is amazing. So he tacks on the word glorious there. And that's not even enough. He wants to make sure that we know it's the riches of this glorious inheritance. If he had a lot of extra paper, maybe he would just keep stacking on adjectives there because he he wants us to know that this inheritance, this eternal life which we're going to get is absolutely amazing. All right, last point. What does Paul say about this rich and glorious inheritance? He wants us to what about it? He wants us to know the hope of this rich, glorious inheritance. Specifically, he wants us to know the hope that we are called to the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Do you have this kind of hope that he's talking about? This is, this is not a wishful thinking kind of hope. This is a rock solid, I know that this is going to happen. There is no doubt at all. So like, if you walked up to somebody on the street today, a stranger, and you said, hey, what do you think happens when you die? Do you think you're going to go to heaven? Most people in our country would say, well, I sure hope so, right? Is that what Paul is talking about in this? Is there any reason for that person that you're talking to to actually have hope that they are going to experience eternal life? Or is it just a wishful thinking? The hope that Paul is talking about here is a solid thing. It's not a fluffy idea. It is solid. It's Knowing the truth, we've seen just a moment, knowing the truth of Scripture, standing on it, trusting it, knowing that it's true, it's a hope that is solid. So it's not, I hope my team wins, or I hope she'll go out with me, or I hope I pass this test that I forgot to study for. It's a much different kind of hope that we're talking about. So if you turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 6, 19, this is on page 1004 in the Pew Bibles we get a little more information about this hope. And this is what I want you guys to see for today. Hebrews 6, 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. There's a couple things going on there. But first, notice that our hope is described as an anchor. A sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. That's a good picture. Here's another good picture. This was just a couple months after we first met the the three girls. Look how small they are. We went on vacation, took them up to Michigan, and we visited the the campus of Hope College, where Jen and I graduated from. And the symbol of Hope College is the anchor. And so in the middle of campus is this giant anchor. The reason it's the symbol is because of this particular verse, that our hope is a sure and steady anchor. For our soul. What is the basis of our hope? How do we, how do we know that we have hope? Well, that's, that's what's happening in the rest of that verse. It's a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. What in the world is being talked about here? What does a curtain have to do with hope? Some of you are familiar with this. You know that in the ancient Jewish system of religion, there, in the temple, there was a place called the Holy of Holies. 
and was separated from the rest of the world by a humongous curtain. So you can see the fancy curtain hanging there, the, the red squares there, the Holy of Holies behind it. The little blue circle is highlighting the size of a person down there. So you get a sense for how giant this curtain was, at least in the, the temple of Jesus' day, which was bigger than the original temple. The writers of Hebrew, writer of Hebrews is telling us that our hope is based on the one who enters into the inner place behind the curtain. In the Jewish system, once a year and only once a year, one priest would be able to go through that curtain, offer sacrifices to God for the atonement of the sins of the whole nation of Israel. When Jesus died on the cross, though, in that last moment of his life, we're told that that curtain that weighed hundreds of pounds was ripped in two from top to bottom, telling us that it's God ripping that curtain in two, putting an end to that whole Old Testament sacrificial system because Jesus is the one who goes into that most holy place on our behalf. He goes in through the curtain to offer the sacrifice. And what is the sacrifice? It is him himself. He is the sacrifice once and for all. It is him and his work that is the basis of our hope. If we read the next verse there in Hebrews, it says, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. Now, we're not going to talk about Melchizedek. We talked about him when we went to Genesis. Okay, in the Old Testament, it's pretty cool stuff. You can look it up, but we don't have time to do that today. But here's the point. Jesus goes in behind the curtain on our behalf, not just as a priest, but also as the sacrifice. And it says that he is the high priest forever, not temporarily, forever. And that is where our hope comes from. Jesus is still our great high priest and he is our once and for all sufficient sacrifice. So Paul prays to the Ephesians that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened so that they would know the hope of the guarantee of the inheritance of eternal life. And we can know this sure hope, as the writer of Hebrews says, a sure and steady anchor for the soul. We can know this hope, not just hope for this hope, but know this hope, a concrete hope. How can we know it? We can only know it through the Word of God. You're not going to come to this conclusion by just meditating in a cave and starving yourself for 40 days. You're, not, you're, you're never going to come up with this idea on your own. Right? You're not going to reason your way into the fact that 2,000 years ago, God came as a man and gave himself as a perfect offering, a sacrifice, and at the same time, the priest. You're not going to come to that from any kind of man-made system. We only know that. And so we can only have the hope in this through the Word of God. Christian, if you have this hope of eternal life, this inheritance, it's not because you've been very religious or good or generous or extra kind or anything like that. It's only because of the great exchange that we talked about last week. Jesus received your sin and he gave you his righteousness. And he did that in that moment, behind the curtain, as the priest, as the sacrifice, and that is the thing that gives us hope. So, 
Let's get back just a little bit of verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. How do we get that? Wisdom, revelation, and knowledge. We get it from his word. So if your hope is weak, you strengthen it by knowing his word better. If you're unclear on what the gospel is, you know it better by reading his word. If you're not sure you belong to Christ, if you're not sure you're in him, you diagnose that through the word. If your faith is shaky and it needs to be bound up and maybe you need a cast on your broken limb, you get that through the word of God. Here's the the point I want you to walk away with today. We have a sure hope that is based only on the person and work of Christ and proclaimed to us through the Scriptures. You can hope all kinds of other things in life. You can hope that this next fall that the, the Tigers are another state champion. Okay? You, you can hope all kinds of things. But when it comes to the big hope, the sure, steady anchor of hope that we have, we get that hope based only on the person and work of Christ proclaimed to us through the Scriptures. So do you have that hope? Is it steady for you? Can you count on it? Can you lean on it? Can you base your life and your day-by-day comings and goings and talking with people? Can you live in that hope? If not, then let me encourage you to go to the source of that wisdom and revelation and knowledge. Go to the Word of God and it will strengthen and grow your hope in you. Then, like Paul, you can look back at your life, the life of your beloved family members and friends, and you can marvel that God has done these things in you and in them. And you can go to God in prayer, constantly giving thanks for what he's done in you, what he's done in your family and your friends, knowing that all of it is meant to give glory to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these verses. And Lord, I just want to pray specifically for the folks in this room right now. And I want to pray most specifically for the young folks in this room, Lord. Lord, I love these young folks. And uh, I'm just so thankful for the, the time that I've been able to spend with them on Wednesday nights recently. I pray, Lord, that you would give them hope. They are growing up in a world that in many ways is, is hopeless, Many of their peers do not have hope, either in this life or in the next. I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen the faith of the young people who are already yours, that they would be built up in this hope. I pray that they would um, set aside the distractions of all the things that are constantly trying to pull their attention away from you, that they would spend their time in your word being strengthened in that hope. Lord, I, I know that they need entertainment, and they need escape from stress, and they need to be able to communicate with friends, and they need all kinds of things, Lord, and yet so much of what is happening in the lives of our young people is a distraction from the more important things. Knowing you better, growing in that hope, knowing that wisdom and revelation and knowledge from your word. Lord, please work in us, work in us all, work, say, especially in our young people, to build them up on this sure, solid hope that only comes 
from who you are and what you have done for us. And we will give you the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.